The serpent comes down and he basically says to Eve, are you ready for this? You can be your own conductor. in the house of the Lord. Uh, I want to say just a couple things really quick before we jump into it. First of all, to our online crew, hey, we love you all. Um, we love that you joined us even digitally. You matter a lot to us. Thank you for being a part of our church even virtually. And I would encourage you to come out. We spent so much time during COVID teaching people to use the online thing. Now I want to meet you. I want our team to meet you. So I want to encourage you to come out and, uh, and let us, that's right. If you would like to meet the people online, let them hear you. That's right. It's, it's early in the morning and I get that their, their clap was kind of like, yeah, we'd like to meet us. But they do. They want to meet you. So if you're a part of the online crew, come and join us. We'd love that you're with us digitally. Um, the other thing I want to say too is I was just, uh, I don't spend much time on social media. My wife does most of it. Most of our accounts we share. And, uh, and so she does most of it. But uh, we were talking a little bit about social media and just how people are searching spiritually. And it dawned on me. I just want to be really, really clear with you. Um, we are, though our staff is very educated, we are not history. We're not a place where we just study history. Listen to me clearly. We believe this. We believe it. I believe the Bible is the inspired work of God. I believe that it can absolutely change your life. I do not pursue education for the sake of history. I so love the stuff in there. I just want to know about it. And then I happen to get degrees because of that. But it's not for the love of education. It's for the love of the content. I love the word of God. And we believe it is real. Um, the other thing that I want to just share with you too, I started preaching before I started preaching there. Um, the other thing I want to share with you too, really quick before we jump into this is we are doing our podcast, Josh and I, and we are responding to questions, especially when we do a series that is so heavily countercultural. Um, there's a lot of questions that come to, to us. And so we're responding to those questions. So on your next steps cards, when you fill out the next steps cards, any of our services, any of our locations, we collect them all and we kind of hone them down to the primary questions and, uh, and then we respond to those questions. So here are the questions we answered from last week's sermon. Last Tuesday, Josh and I answered these questions in response to last week's sermon. The first question we answered this last Tuesday from the prior Sunday's message, why does culture not like love as defined by the Bible? Like, I mean, Jesus is doing all this nice stuff. He's like healing people. He's feeding people. Why do so many people hate him if he's doing all this nice stuff? We talked about that. The second question that we answered is, uh, as a parent or guardian or grandparent, how do I counter the culture's definition of love with the biblical definition of love? So what are some real tactical 
parenting, grandparenting, mentoring things that I can do to help offset the shaping of the culture, the culture shaping of the word love in our children's lives. We talked about that. The third question, and this, that was a great question. That question came through various forms. So it was like grandparents or parents or even like mentors or even school teachers in a classroom. It was really interesting. Uh, so that was one we talked about. And then the third question that we tried to answer, summing up a number of questions, I have friends that know what I believe and know that I care about them. They just strongly disagree with me. What's next? They know that I care. I'm already doing that well. They really do know that I care. And they know what I believe. I'm not hiding the truth. And they just strongly disagree with me. So where do I go from here? Josh and I talked about that. Uh, So I encourage you, check out the podcast, Made for More. Um, And if you have questions on the Next Steps cards, you can write those questions down. And when you turn those in, along with prayer requests, decisions you need to make for Jesus, um, man, write them down on the card or questions that you have. Bring them forward at the end of the service. We collect them from the different locations. We pull them together and we try to answer the prime questions that come our way. So check it out. It was good. Um, Man, it was actually fun working through these this last week. All right. Into the meat. I hope you had coffee this morning. How many people here had coffee? All right, how many had it early enough that it's kicking in? That's good. I need it to be kicked in here. Uh, we are going to go on a little bit of a journey, and this journey is going to require you to have to engage your mind pretty significantly early service, first service of our chain of them. I hope you're awake. Turn to your neighbor and say, wake up. Wake up, wake up. Here we go. All right, we are on a journey. We have been on a journey. We'll continue this journey to uncover what we mean by the word love, what is meant by the word love. And without a doubt, in our modern world, one of the confusing places for the church, especially in the West, is we want to be a loving church, but the culture, we're letting the culture, we're letting popular culture define what love means. So a lot of churches in the West are trying to be loving, but they're trying to be loving as defined by secular culture. It's good to be loving, but you need to be loving as defined by transcendent truth, not secular culture. So how do we walk that road of what loving means as defined by God in the Bible? That's really important. Uh, Let me say it like this, quick review. If God is love, if God is love, and the greatest, like love is, and the greatest, uh, if God is love, and the greatest in an exhaustive list of virtues, we better know what love actually means. Right? In Scripture, 1 John 4, 16, 1 Corinthians 13. Another way to say it is this. If love is the greatest of an exhaustive list of virtues in the Bible, we better know exactly what it means. Exactly what it means. Exactly what it means. And the greatest of these is love, the end of 1 Corinthians. The definition of love, the definition of love has spiritual warfare all over it. The definition of love has spiritual warfare all over it. And it has since the beginning. There is nothing... Satan would like more than for you to interpret love in a way that isn't actually the nature or heart of God. Let me say that again. There is nothing Satan would like more than for you to interpret love in a way that isn't actually the nature or heart of God. I want you to know what it means to love your neighbor as yourself well. Luke 10, 27. I want to understand, I want you, I want to understand, I want you to understand what loving God actually looks like in daily living, Mark 12, 30. 
I even want you to know what it looks like to love your What does the Bible mean when it says love your enemy? Does it mean open permission? Just encourage them and good job to anything they choose to do? What does it mean to love your enemy? Matthew 5, 44. Our primary text through this whole series, 10 weeks, we're taking it apart literally a couple of words at a time. Some weeks will literally be a word. Uh, but the whole text that we're studying for the next number of weeks is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then, I love this, love never, it never fails. So what exactly is love if half the marriages around us are failing? I uh, was really struggling with an illustration for this sermon in particular. And, and this week we're going to be looking at, at love does not envy and boast. And I'm like, man, Lord, help me to under, explain this. Understand and explain it in a way that honors you. Uh, how many people know what this is right here? If you're listening on the podcast I can't say what it is because I give away a tuning fork. Tuning fork. It's a tuning fork. You guys know this is tuning fork. Um, this little device is really interesting. I actually watched a whole documentary on tuning forks. Definitely worth it. Uh, National Museum of American History. Phenomenal on the tuning fork. You ought to check it out. Of course, I'm... I'm Made in a way, it's awesome. I know half people think it's boring. My kids walk through, Dad, what are you watching? It's about tuning forks. So the next time we're driving down the road, I'm going to kick out massive random things about tuning forks. And it's going to be great. <laughs> tuning forks. So the tuning fork is really interesting. For most, uh, or for a long time in history, when they, of course, these have been around for a long time in various forms. Uh, but through most of history, it was kind of used mostly in music, right? So you would strike it, and then you'd set it down, and you'd like tune an instrument to it. So like in an orchestra. I mean, for years, in an orchestra, thinking like Bach and Beethoven and countless beautiful, complex sets of music brought to humanity, and when the whole band is sitting together, somebody there in that orchestra for many years, hopefully this will work here, because it's, it's kind of quiet. I have to get my microphone close, that's why I'm doing it. And one tone, everybody starts tuning to that tone. Well, what they discovered with the tuning fork is uh, it actually has medical purposes. Super interesting. Tuning forks can calm the mind for people that are in anxiety. Tuning forks, I mean, this, is, this absolutely blows my mind. Tuning forks are used, the vibrations are so perfect. For many years, scientists used tuning forks to measure things based on vibration speed. So standards of vibration, standards of measurement. In fact, how we initially discovered the speed of light, the vibrations of a tuning fork, and matching those wavelengths. This is beyond me. It was amazing. Tuning forks are incredible. Now, the other thing that's really interesting about this too, in fact, uh, maybe a clear way to say this is 
all of nature, all of nature, all of nature, all of nature is looking for something to align with, to reference. All of nature is. We are built to want things to be harmonious. We are. We're built that way. Now, this goes way beyond. In fact, if you watch this documentary, so like the human body, DNA, I mean, how the system works at a grand level in the universe, the rhythms and tones of it all. Literally, the universe has a tone to it. It's crazy. Um, all the way down to even like our cells and DNA, we want things to be harmonious. Now, notice this. We want to find harmony in our music. Yes. But we want to find harmony in our arts, harmony in our arts. We want to find harmony in our emotions. Dude, people love life or commit suicide based on how harmonious they feel with themselves and with others. Like, harmony is a huge deal. We want harmony in our biology, right? Like, what is cancer? It's out of control, not working about the system, consuming other cells. We want harmony of biology. We want harmony in our nature. We want harmony even in our relationships. We want harmony everywhere. We long for harmony. We long for harmony. In fact, um, I am not a, a music major. I was not, though I do play the guitar. And I've been told people that are really, anybody here like pitch perfect? I, I am not. I'm just curious. Anybody pitch perfect? Nobody here. Great. I'm going to do this all morning at all the services to see if anybody raises their hand. And then if they do, Josh, you're going to test them. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Are they really pitch perfect? Supposedly, if I'm understanding this right, people that are pitch perfect, it can literally be painful when somebody's singing and they're out of tune. It's like, oh man, they can feel it. It actually hurts when it's out of tune. Now, it's a good thing I'm not that way. I did youth ministry for a long time. I got to listen to a lot of teenagers lead worship. If I was pitch perfect, it might have been rough. Right, but it can literally be painful. Uh, a couple of things on this, uh, about this, that we just need to really consider when it comes to harmony. I want to really, really lock this in. We are built to want things to be harmonious, right? We find it in all these different ways. For harmony to exist, for harmony to exist, you must desire the effect of what we, whatever that we is. So it's got to be another. Maybe it's another body, another thing, another tone, another instrument, another person. For harmony to exist, you must desire the combined effect of we, what we can make, over what I can make alone. Harmony, right? Harmony requires first submission to an objective maker, former, tone, something, right? So with the orchestra, everybody has to submit to that little itty. All the instruments are louder. But they all have to submit to that tiny tone for there to be harmony. I want to pause for a moment and I, I do want to sit in theology camp for about five minutes. The sad story of humanity, so if you go back to Genesis, right? So the sad story of humanity is it is what, uh, it is a dissonance that's taking place. So in the beginning when God, Elohim, created Barah, right? Like so when God created, 
It is literally plural. The spirit hovers above the water. So like everything that we know is made from the Trinity, the family. And the Garden of Eden is in this right harmony. Everything is, the way it's described as it is a right harmony. Everything is operating as it was intended to. So it's purpose for creation played out rightly with everything around it. That's the idea in the Garden of Eden. And then the serpent, right? And now it's always depicted as a snake. That's fine. We can go with it. Though academically it could be more than that or something different, but that's okay. So like then the snake comes down, the serpent comes down, and he basically says to Eve, are you ready for this? You can be your own conductor. You define what is right. I mean, like, again, if you're following the deeper ideas through Scripture, this is the sin of Balaam. Teaching a people how to live in dissonance with the rhythms of God. So all of a sudden, in the Garden of Eden, everything is operating in this harmony, and then the Satan, the deceiver, the liar, even his name, what it means in the original language is so interesting, the deceiver basically says to Eve, I'm going to teach you to sing off key. And at that moment, at that little spot, in this perfect, glorious, uber-complex harmony, all of a sudden, off key happens, and it all starts to break apart. In Christian theology, we are made from perfect harmony, the Trinity, this is a really important theological idea, to participate in making harmony. We're supposed to participate in the family. The reason God, this is so important, the reason God can be perfect love is because God is a perfect family. Love requires others, right? So it's so important, the idea of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit interacting with each other. The Trinity is the perfect, harmonious tuning fork for everything in the universe to follow. That's the biblical idea. The Trinity is this tone, right? Not this tone, literally, but like with the metaphor. That everything is supposed to come in alignment with. Now, if you're really, really geeky and you want to do this, don't do it now. Don't, don't look it up on your phones now. But you can Google perichoresis, if you really want to go down the theology train and run down that rabbit hole of theology for the ultra nerdy in this room, it is very interesting. Literally how the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how they interact with each other. Um, what is the nature of that family? What tone does it create? How do we learn from it? There's a whole theology based on this idea. So when I say love, understanding love, when I say pursuing love, this is what I mean. Pursuing love is a pursuit of, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, pursuing love is a pursuit of perfect harmony as defined by the perfect harmony. Ultimate love is ultimate harmony. Do you see it? All right, with this in mind, let's go to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pull all these ideas together in a little bit. 1 Corinthians 13b, love does not envy and it does not. All right, let's do this together. Love does not and it does not. Why is this such a big deal? And a core differentiator, differentiator in Scripture. A couple things. One, envy. Envy refers, 
Envy refers to the intense desire to advance at the disadvantage of someone else. So now it's not, I find joy and peace in working with you. Now it's, I want you to think competition. I want to beat you out. I want to be louder. I want to be stronger. I want to be faster. I want to be more famous. Think competition. Think feeling superior to those around you. Think I deserve. Think entitlement. You see, the very heart of envy puts you in a place where instead of enjoying the culmination of your uniqueness, now all of a sudden you see all the other uniqueness as a threat and you need to stand above it. That at its very core is anti-trinity. Can you see it? Envy. Boast. Boast. Refers to the desire to obtain adoration. Again, look at me. In fact, what is the Satan? He's the one that wants to be God, have the adoration. Refers to the desire to obtain adoration or acknowledgement from others or acknowledgement from others by explaining, almost always by explaining to others your own self-worth, right? Like, I'm amazing, I'm great, you ought to care about me. Usually without them asking to know about it, right? Usually. So without them asking to know about it. They just love to share this. So think bragging. Think one-upmanship. Think wanting to sound smarter, sound stronger, sound favored. Think justifying away other successes. Really the very culmination of this, if you read much of C.S. Lewis, is he sums these two poles against harmony. He sums them up with this word called pride. In fact, listen to this. You've probably heard this before. Pride is the anti-harmony. Pride is the anti-harmony. So instead of the beauty of what we make together, pride is what I make. You all be quiet. You all, I am the center. Lewis says pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, proud of being cleverer, or even better-looking than other people. If everyone else becomes equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride is gone. Literally, this idea is important. Pride, me as the center, my way, what I want, Envy, boasting is the anti-harmony. You cannot enjoy, participate, or understand the love of God if you are egocentric. You can't. Because you have a wrong God. You are trying to make you your God. The deceiver, the deceiver, what is the lie that we're constantly hearing? The deceiver is going to try to shift love in your heart from care for, like I want this to be beautiful, to consume. It's all for me. In many ways, the deceiver is going to try to shift love in your heart from care for to consume. Let me give you some examples. Money. 
Money will shift from a tool for harmony to a tool to consume, hoard, and show off. When you try to make your appetites and your desires the center tone. In fact, uh, I was, uh, this is a number of months ago, I was, my wife was showing me something and I was looking on social media and uh, the whole idea of like, you know, hashtag blessed life. You guys ever seen it? Hashtag blessed life. And the idea was, I'm going to drive my Lambos and live in amazing houses and do all this. I'm going to show all you how God has blessed me. Like, hang with me. Showing off the love of God to these people is showing God loves me more than you. God so loved this world, what did God do to show his love? He sacrificed his son for our benefit. If you want to show off the love of God, don't use your power in whatever form to show yourself superior. Use it to make the world more harmonious with God. Do you see it? What are you showing off? The heart of God or the sum of your appetites? What are you showing off, right? So money will shift from a tool for harmony to a tool to consume, hoard, and show off, right? It is easier. I mean, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? This is difficult, right? Others, the we. Sex, let's talk about sex. Will shift from a mechanism to participate in deep intimacy. Sex was designed to bind two separate fleshes together to be able to participate. It's a tool to help participate in deep intimacy. I participate in this for the benefit of the other and to the joy of we is what it's supposed to be. But if you are a consumer of sex, right, like it's just a tool, pornography, whatever it is, right, sex will shift from a mechanism to participate in deep intimacy to a tool for mere personal gratification. You would literally take joy at the pain and hurt of others. And you'll slowly move that direction and justify it. It's how the enemy works. Let's talk about friendships. Friendships will shift from a place of safety. How many of us want to be in friendships that actually feel safe? Friendships will shift from a place of safety where you can be honest and open and, buzzword, authentic. They'll shift from a place to be safe to a place of superficial posturing. What is social media? Social media is not friendship. It's mountains of superficial posturing to other people. It's hashtag bless life now that's not your real life and makes everybody else feel worse. Most of the time, much of the time, right? So even friendships will shift when you move away from self-sacrifice, submission to the we, to the harmony of the Trinity, to more consume in me and entitlement. Even your friendships, your friendships will become more superficial, full of posturing. What about leadership? What about leadership? I get it. I'm a leader. I've got 20-some staff and uh, multiple locations. And I'm a leader. Leadership will turn staff, leadership, to all of you that are in leadership roles, leadership 
If you think consume, if you think me, my, I win over others, leadership will turn staff into tools. Mere tools for gaining more significance, power, and or money. I'm going to invite Josh up and I'm going to be done in just a few minutes as I pull these ideas together. Uh, I was, years ago, back when I was doing my master's, uh, I did a part of it on uh, heavy apologetics, right? So we were going through like Dawkins and Hitchens and the Four Horsemen of Atheism and a lot of the literature that was popular back then. It's really died on the vine, uh, ironically. At that time when I was doing my master's, everybody thought that was going to be like the main thing we'd be facing today. And man, Dan, it's gone quiet. Um, But when I was going through that heavy apologetic season in my education, I remember stumbling across a quote from one of these guys And the quote was basically this. The God of the Bible sounds like a whiny old lonely woman. Always saying, look at me, pay attention to me, somebody see me. The God of the Bible, this guy said, this atheist said, the God of the Bible sounds like an Lonely old woman saying, please remember me. Please don't forget about me. Please pay attention to me. Remember me. No, my friends. It is true that God says, look at me. Pay attention to me. It's because God is the perfect conductor. Working to attune our dissonance back into perfect harmony. He's not a needy old lady. It is the universe's tone calling everything that's out of tune back into glorious harmony. That's what God is. That's what love is. In fact, I would say it like this. To reference Eve in the garden with the serpent... And then all through history, the way we've worked to misinterpret love, because the way we misinterpret love is we always imply through many different ways. And this happens with little children. I have five kids, right? So even in my home, little kids. If you love me, you would. And what they mean by that is, if you love me, you'd let me be the conductor. No, if you understood love, you would cease to envy and boast. God is the only one who can say, everyone look to me, and it tunes everything properly. You can't say that. You're two-year-old. Mine's almost two. Getting closer to two. My two-year-old would love for the whole world to revolve around her. But for the sake of all of your harmony, no. For the sake of our home's harmony, no. I do not teach my child that she is the center of our world. I teach my child that he is the center of all worlds.
Envy and boasting do two things. They do two things. To envy and boast are to bring dissonance to our hearts. That's one thing. It brings dissonance to our hearts. So when you envy and you boast, when you give in to that, so if you're envying, you wish you had something that's not fair and all your prayers and all your conversations and all your talk is like, I deserve, I deserve. It's not fair. I deserve, I deserve. The more you do that, you're taking your heart and you're leaning it more and more out of tune with what love actually is. And the discipline of practicing trusting God with. God, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to trust you with it. In fact, for some of you today, what you need to put on your next steps card is something you need to trust God with. An appetite, a desire, something that feels off. Man, you're hurting. You feel the jealousy. You feel like it's unfair. You don't even know how to wrestle with it. You need to write it down. That needs to be a prayer request. We need to follow up with you. We would love to help. Get into counseling. Maybe that's what you need to pray over is an envy issue. Because the more you practice envy, it's going to bring dissonance in your heart. And you know this. In fact, if you battle with envy, you know this. The more you think about it, the worse you feel. The worse you feel. And the dissonance, the out of tune, it doesn't just affect what feels fair out there. Now what feels unfair as you practice that dissonance gets into your heart, gets into your mind. You have the mind games and you can't sleep and you pace and you have conversations 80 times in your head around the house, right? And then it can literally, we know this even through some of this research I was going through, massive envy that leads to all this dissonance and frustration, it can make you physically sick. To envy and boast are to bring dissonance to our hearts by discipline. And it doesn't always, sometimes faithfulness follows, or faithful, faithfulness goes before feelings. And so maybe the way to deal with envy initially is not to go, I feel, all right, now I understand it. My feelings are gone. I, don't you wish we could control feelings better? Feelings. They drive me bananas. And my wife wishes I had more of them. I don't want more of them. I want less. I want to be a Vulcan, right? Like, I'm just kidding. I don't want to be a Vulcan. Feelings are not bad. Feelings are wonderful tools that help us enjoy life. But you must practice discipline even in them. And so there might be people out there time and time and time and time again for the next number of years with all your envy, you're going to keep laying it before God. Every time the enemy reminds you of where you're envious, you remind the enemy that that's now your trigger for prayer. Number two, to envy and boast impede our ability to help others attune to God. So even if you're a Christian home and your home is full of we deserve, they mistreated us, I'm entitled, that's not fair, these people are, they may. What you do in your home is you say you're Christian, but you're attuning your children not to God. In fact, attunement, uh, my mom is a counselor, taught psychology for a long time. She's retired now. Mom watches online. Hey, I love you, mom. You're one of our online attenders. You're amazing. You're a great mother. I'm glad I grew up in your home. 
get me a great Christmas present. Okay, so, no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to get me a Christmas. Don't buy me anything. I don't need, I don't need anything from you other than your attention and love. Um, my mom would even say that attunement begins at a young age when a little child falls down and skins their knee and they look for their parent to see how they're supposed to respond. And if the parent goes, oh, I hope you're okay, then the baby's like, ah. But if the parent's like, you're fine, get up. They're, they're attuning. So when you fall down and skin your knee with envy, it still hurts, but what are you going to look to? The big question I want to ask, and I'm, I'm out of time, but the big question I want to ask is this. What do you do with the disharmony and dissonance you experience in the world? Because there's a lot of it out there in your heart and in the world. And by the way, oh man, there's so much more I could say on this. I knew coming in today it would be a thick sermon. Our whole modern education system is teaching our children to attune to their own appetites. And there's a lot I would like to say about that, but I can't. What do we do with the disharmony because of time and the dissonance you experience in this world? Number one, first evaluate the condition of your heart. When you feel the envy or you feel the boasting, so I have it, now I got it. Now I'm the wealthy, powerful boss, whatever. I'm gonna lord it over you, show off. Look how, how much God has blessed me, me, me. How he's blessed me over you. Right, wherever you're at, the envy or the boasting, evaluate the condition of your heart first. Stop, re stop refusing to evaluate your own heart because all you are is looking at other people. The, the, the little stuff in the eye of others and the, the plank that's in your own. Stop, stop, stop. You're right. There is massive dissonance all around you. Stop using that as an excuse to not deal with your own condition in your own heart. Evaluate the condition of your own heart first. First, where is my heart at before the Lord? Deal with that. Model that to your children. Number two, yes, as you do that, evaluate the condition of the world around you. And it's a mess. I promise you'll see lots of dissonance. So God left us in this world of massive dissonance. We talked about that a couple weeks ago for this primary purpose to help be harmony makers. God might want you in that job of dissonance to try to bring harmony to it. So with the dissonance that's in here and the dissonance that's out there and our desire to work it into harmony, what do we do? Look to the instruction of Jesus to his followers. How does Jesus teach his followers to deal with dissonance? Think attunement. And attunement always begins with humility. You do not find your way to the heart of Jesus through pride ever. It's always humility. Whether you're the boasting have it all or the envy wish I did, the only way to the king is through humility. Last thought, and I'm going to let you all go here. Christian love, Christian love does whatever it takes to pursue harmony between God and man. 
even death on a cross. Christian love rejects pride and superiority and embodies charity that clearly points to God. That's what we do. We work to bring people to others. So when we say love, when we say love, the core of it is not your appetites, either what you wish you had, stuff things, material, or you do have it and you're like, look how God's blessed me. When we say love, what we mean is attuning to the heart of the Trinity. Perichoresis. The tone that started the universe and the very tone that's going to take you past death. If you would, grab your next steps card. What is God speaking in your heart? What do you need to trust him with? I know I went a little long today. What do you need to trust the Lord with? Is there a place of envy? You're going, man, I got to trust God with. I'm very envious over money or boasting or whatever it is. Just pour it out. Prayer request. Write it down on the next steps card. If you have a question, we want to answer it. If you need to make a decision to follow Jesus, write it on the card. Thank you for being gracious with me today. Listen, I am going to do whatever it takes to show how beautiful the love of God Love as defined by God is. Take some time, write on your cards. Go, go for it. I love you. Grab your card, write on it, go. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps. Thank you.